Hey there, it's Ashley Stahl here, counterterrorism professional turned career and business coach, and I am here for those moments when you look in the mirror and you realize it's time to make some sort of radical change or U-turn in your life so that you can stop operating on cruise control and start living your life on purpose. So join me here on the U-Turn podcast every single week where you're going to be hearing from inspiring, insightful guests, be it CEOs, spiritual leaders, love experts, or of course, yours truly, so that you can become your very best self without having to take life so seriously. And don't forget, if you head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com, that's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N Podcast.com, you're going to get access to show notes, which have books and resources mentioned by our guests, as well as access to one of my four free e-courses over at U-TurnPodcast.com. Whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch that dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. Woof, okay, enough about me. Let's get this party started with this week's guest. This episode is brought to you by Cake Publishing, Ghostwriting, Publicity, and Copywriting House. They're to help influencers and entrepreneurs get their voice out there in a much bigger way. If you're ready to make a bigger impact, head on over to cakepublishing.com. That's C-A-K-E publishing.com. everybody, Ashley Stahl here on the U-Turn Podcast, and we have somebody extra interesting on the show this week. It's Jay Abraham, who is literally the world's most influential executive coach named by Forbes in pretty much every publication you've ever seen. Uh, he's also the author of so many books, I can't even name them in this little bio, and he happens to have been my mentor. He's mentored Tony Robbins, Damon John, uh, and so many more, and he is really dubbed the godfather of marketing for good reason. He's been an inspiration to me in our coaching call. And he's also somebody who is here to help you in this episode figure out how to better market yourself in the workforce, um, how to answer difficult questions when you're trying to get hired, how to stay relevant and motivated in a competitive job market, and so much more. And he's all about creating that success without being arrogant. So stay tuned and definitely grab your pen to take some notes. First of all, It's an honor and a privilege for me to have a contribution opportunity to you. I'm, um, I have great interest in all of you and your age group and your, and, uh, your generation for the potential you hold in your hands. I have children your age and just so you know it, so I can be a little bit uh, comforting to you. And it's just not arrogant. It's just, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, uh, as I said, comforting. I counsel Damon John from Shark Tank. I counsel Dave Asprey from Bulletproof. I counsel, uh, Kairos Society, which is, uh, they, they uncover really, uh, spectacular, uh, technology startup companies with young people. And they typically have eight or nine of the fortune, uh, 30 under 30. And I've done a lot of work helping people get jobs. I have a son who's older than you, but he's gotten every job uh, except one he's ever gone after, and most of them he was underqualified for. Ashley asked me to share with you some fresh perspectives that might give you what I will call an incredible catapulting advantage in both your success potential possibility, viability, but also 
in your ability to put risk on the shoulders of all the other applicants and advantage onto yours. What I'd like to humbly request, because I have some notes and I have very interesting thoughts on them, but if I don't look at them from time to time, I won't remember and then I'll disappoint myself and you. So don't judge me on referring, referencing my notes. So one of the first things that Ash, <clears throat> pardon me, Ashley and I talked about was how do you stand for what you are worth? And I've got uh, a multitude of answers and suggestions. And over the course of my career, we've created abundance of uh, resources and products and programs. And because I am so, oh, I also help Ramit Sethi. Uh, we're so committed to your greatness and your success because really and truly you are the future of of uh, our country, our economy, our freedom, our our relevance, and my children and grandchildren. Long when I'm gone, you'll be the leaders. So I want to do everything I can. So let's start in looking at self-worth from a bunch of different uh, vantage points. Coincidentally, I'm going to start by saying that the vast amount of people out there have lower self-esteem, lower self-worth, and lower sense of not aspirational but achievemental possibility than they really have the capacity within to accomplish. There's a reason most don't achieve what they're capable of, and it's multifaceted. One is they have to believe in themselves, not arrogant, not cocky, not conceited, but confident with the certainty that the value they are bringing to both their employer or the market, the clients the employer serves, is outsized in proportion to the requirements of the job. Number two, that they are not just looking for a job, that you have to be in sync and on a mission and a crusade in behalf of your employer for the advocacy of the purpose your product or service the company provides makes in the minds and the hearts and the lives of the clients who buy it. Nashley, if I get too esoteric, your job is to smack me down so it's clear. So tell me, is this clear so yeah, far? crystal clear. And, and, you know, you did a great job also explaining this is really a mixed, a diverse bag of topics that I handed off to you because I know you're so rich with information. So all Good. of this is going to be beneficial. So, yeah. And I'll try to tie it all together at the end, but I'm just dealing with things. So the first thing, just as a courtesy to you, Ashley, I, I counsel a lot of people that have, they don't even know they have low self-esteem. They don't know they have a low self-worth. They don't know that they don't feel uh, worthy, yep. even though they externally may look very confident. Mm-hmm. And we've collected an abundance of resources that I give to them, including explanations, self-assessments, contrast, uh, therapeutic, not going to the, to the therapist, but self-therapeutic tools, fabulous, fabulous quotes from remarkably iconic people who transcend every aspect of life. And I'd like to share that with you. You can put it on your website. Number two is realize this. 
failure is not permanent. If you haven't achieved what you want or you haven't succeeded in your in your uh, pursuits in the past, it has absolutely positively zero to do with what's going to happen from this day onward. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there's a, a study that most individuals only get 20% of the potential that resides within them. And it's not because you don't want to be great. We're going to talk about greatness in, in a few minutes because I've done a lot of work on it. But it's because you don't know how to connect at the highest, deepest, richest level with the other side. I teach in marketing what's called the you attitude. Mm-hmm. Another plane. I forgot it's Friday and all the doctors take off and they have all these old military planes and biplanes. If you were here, it's very beautiful. If you're listening, it's an irritant. Oh, I actually can't even hear anything, but that's so interesting. That is all I can hear it very much, and I have ADD, so I do. Well, and you know what, me and you both, so this could be like spaghetti if you let me run it too much. But let me tell you, um, I just want to point out to everybody who's listening as well that, you know, Jay's talking about mindset and confidence and self-esteem. And, you know, Jay and I have had some calls, and he's even pointed out, because I know there's a lot of you that write back to our communications, and sometimes I feel like people are putting me on any sort of pedestal, And I just want to pop that balloon right now because I've talked to Jay and even he has pointed out areas in my own mindset where there's so much work. So no matter, you know, if you want to know how you're doing, you just look at your results in the world with your mindset. And I think that that's what Jay is really here to help with. So I will leave it to you with that. You're the advocate. No, no. You can interrupt me as often. I have no pride of authorship and I want it to be clear. And I come from a pretty sophisticated level and I'm trying to torque it down to, to the, the very simple level, not not simple and just respecting you, but respecting you. I'm going to use a quote right now. It's very famous. Most people in life struggle with the wrong non-verbalized question. It, it haunts them in their mind, in their heart. And the question is, am I really worthy of this goal? Can I really, uh, you know, get a much better job with greater potential and a career uh, future where I can get both financial uh, compensation at a high enough level, rewarding me for my contribution. Very important. Rewarding me for my contribution, not just paying me a lot of money for being a piece of, uh, human, uh, intellectual capital. You got to make contribution. That's what you get rewarded for. Second, can I really grow and be satisfied, fulfilled over a life in one or multiple careers that will be meaningful? That is the wrong answer, or excuse me, the wrong question to ask. The right question is not are you worthy of the goal. When you realize how much more is possible from your time, your opportunities, your interaction, your optionality, all the options available, your internal ability to connect and contribute at a much higher level to employers, the right question is not, Am I worthy of the goal? It's, is the goal worthy of me? So start with that distinction, but don't be arrogant. So back to self-worth. Self-worth comes from a realization of the value you bring to someone else. And value has many components. It can be ability that is either learned, experienced, earned college. It can be uh, latent, just your charisma, your stick your uh, 
your natural, unique intelligence or other gifts. Value can be your ability to bring an element to a business they don't have or to a department or a job. Value can mean your willingness to grow and develop and add value and be more than just a static asset. Value and worth can be you being able to do more, work harder, uh, uh, extend yourself more. But you have to reconcile yourself that it's not up to the employer uh, recruiter to see the value in you. It's up to you to be able to depict, demonstrate, uh, contrast, uh, denominate in as best ways as you can your value to them. How do you do that, you might ask? Let me count the ways and denominate them for you. So first, the most important thing you can learn, in, in my opinion, in any job interview or or uh, encounter is to know everything you can learn about the company and not just cite it like an automatron, but reflect on it. Look at their competitors. Look at the industry. Look at the trends. Look at the people that run it. Look at the person you are going to be involved with. Look at other people in the same related or elevated or different jobs there and study their backgrounds. Look at people that have left that company and hopefully on good terms and call them and ask them good questions. Have yourself preparation, knowledge-based preparation, not uh, mechanical and uh, theatrical preparation and not preparation that you just regurgitate but that you internalize and then you use for meaningful uh, dialogue, not veneer-type, just superficial conversation. That's the first step. The second step is to be able to ask more meaningful Socratic questions than anyone else. This has a multitude of benefits. First benefit is not Many people will ever do this. My skill and my fame came from the fact that I genuinely had a hopeless curiosity and the ability to connect dots. And whenever I got introduced to a business owner, I would ask questions about the business, about how it runs, about what their problems, what their opportunities, what their advantages, what if I were to get involved the big thing we'd concentrate. And I always wanted to know the reasons why. And I would always invest in them. If you opt to be reactive, you've already lost your, uh, your not just advantage, but your positioning. You want to be proactive, allow them to ask questions, but become capable. You don't have to be masterful. It's to be authentic of turning the tables and asking them questions. Tell me about the job. Tell me about what it entails. Tell me about what the optimal uh, 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 applicant or, or 
uh, or a team member who, who, uh, who, who secures it is going to do. Tell me about who they're going to work with. Tell me about how what that job does relates to everything else. Tell me about the best person that you've either had in it or you have in a, in a, in the job if there are more positions. Tell me about what I need to do to bring more value to you in that job than anyone else ever has. Not necessarily what I bring today, but what I can grow and bring and how I would do that so that I would be a long-term uh, outsized investment with you. Tell me about what is the most, um, what's the word I would use, the biggest gap you see in a lot of people my age that you interview. Tell me what you admire about the people you've hired that do uh, do the best job. Tell me about the people you've tried that don't really work out and, and the attributes, the character traits, bad or good, because I need to make sure for you and for me that I believe that I can fill and, and, and execute the job for you better than anyone else you're interviewing or I would be stealing from you. Let me continue, but Ashley, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think that what you're really pointing out is just this topic that so many people struggle with is making sure that you're not just about you and you're really covering the fact that you're making it about them and you're internalizing uh information about them in a way where you're not just regurgitating because like you said, people can feel that. Uh, and I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with here. So definitely hitting the nail on the head. I hope everybody's taking a lot of notes. So related to this, thank you. Yeah. Related to this are a couple of very important personal distinctions. One is you have to genuinely be interested. If all you're looking at is a paycheck, you're dead in the water because it'll be transparent unless you're so desirable. And even then you're going to have some credibility and authenticity problems. If you're really interested and you want to learn about what should be part of your either long-term career or at least career path, and your career path is almost always going to be determined by the success you produce. Not that the company produces for you, but that you produce through and for them. And it's a collaborative process. You have to demonstrate and grasp the fact that in business today, more than ever before, it is based on collaboration, appreciating, empathizing, respecting, understanding, acknowledging all the different players in the business and making sure that you understand how they fit in, how you fit in, not trying to be an island, but being the opposite. So you have to be genuinely interested to be able to ask those questions. You have to realize it's not about you. It's about what you can bring currently and through, you know, through time to that business above and beyond other people. And they definitely, unless you're a specialist, have lots of other options. Why should you, why should they choose you? There's an underlying thread called the reason why. Mm -hmm. Part of the answer is nonverbal. 
It's just the demonstrable evidence of your character, your focus, your motivation. The other is taking your background and ethically manipulating the good and preempting the not good. So let's say you have a lot of skill sets that should translate. Let's say you have some gaps that aren't full, fully compliant with the job. So you start by sharing when they ask you, and I don't wait for them. Say, it would help me if I could sort of share with you a little snapshot of me so we can really help you uh, assess me in the most uh, accurate and meaningful way. And you can say, as as I understand the job, it's this. But I would love you to expand and share not just what the job is, but what the job needs to work through. Who else is critical in this job for me to connect with? What are the functions and what do you feel that the skill sets are? And then after you get that, you have to think on your feet. You calibrate and you say, okay, let me share with you those elements of my background and or those elements of my character or my strong suits that I think would be very valuable in this job and why. And then tell them why. You can say, because I got trained by this person and he's trained, you know, under the top, whatever. Or because I've done five different variations of this at a lower level. So I don't need fundamental training. I need specific adaptive training. If you have, just giving you examples, I don't know what the job would be. If you have gaps, say, don't wait for them to ask you. Preemptive advantage is you recognizing, articulating, and and uh, bridging or transcending it. For example, I don't have, uh, uh, I've got, I don't have skill with uh, X uh, technology, but I do have mastery, or at least uh, proficiency in this and this and this. That's ninety percent. And I'm willing either on your time or my own to invest to be trained before I would even start. This is amazing. I think one thing to point out as it relates to all of this and what you're saying, Jay, is the fine line between shining a spotlight on an insecurity and addressing a weakness. Do you have any thoughts on just how do people preemptively address? Sure. Without, Because, you know, sometimes if you go on and on about it, you start to look like it's a huge problem and, and it's all about maintaining your energy and not being nervous as you're addressing a perceived. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is without being arrogant, you start with the good and you show the reasons why you're very, very, very qualified in all these areas or you have adaptive per, uh, experience or you've been trained in readiness for the next level. If you have. And then you introduce and you can say, but I mean, I doubt you, you, you aggregate. You say, I doubt that everyone you interview is going to have perfect credentials. Maybe they do, but I'd like to hope that my 85% of absolute match and, and the 15% that I have to, you know, 
to either gain is is uh, you know is superior. But let me just tell you, even though I don't understand yet because I've never had the need to this, it's basically this and this, which is the same kind of dynamic as these other twelve uh, technologies that I'm proficient in. So, and again, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I'm fine if that's a a uh, concern. Making any stipulation that is legal for HR, where if you hire me, it could be on a probationary basis, with the stipulation that I have to master this or at least gain proficiency within the first four weeks. And I mean, and so you basically you 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 make it a badge of courage. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. And I think that that makes it a way that they can communicate it, too. One of the things that I do, and it's actually not embarrassing, I am technophobic. I don't turn my computer on. And yet I have so many technology clients and friends, the top guy in in, um, big data uh, many people in blockchain because they know that if they can give me understanding of what the technology is supposed to do, I can articulate it, demonstrate it, and and uh, convey it very, very powerfully to the end user who's got to buy it. So don't minimize the fact that, that perfection in any job is you're either going to be underqualified or overqualified. If you're just qualified, then you have no growth potential. And you want to make sure that there is not just a lopsided arrangement for you to get a job, but it's clear to them and to you that you will be investing, in your opinion, more uh, passion, more commitment, more opportunity cost, more uh, time, more self-education, in the in in their in their enterprise because you want it to be as richly rewarding of a mutual relationship for both sides for them and for you and it can't happen if both sides don't invest in one another continuously does that make sense yeah and a, and a couple of questions well one thing i'm feeling you kind of touch on earlier was you're talking about genuine interest which to me what came up was just this idea that that's what's going to build trust and so what I was sensing is that you're talking about how to build trust. Yeah. And, and how to be relevant. And fortunately for you, so I don't have to try to remember it, Stephen M. R. Covey, the son of Stephen R. Covey, who created a, a famous book, which many people uh, of your age may not read, The Seven Habits yep. of Highly Effective People. Great book. His son, who's about my age, and his partner, Greg, Greg Link, who's a good friend of mine, are the world experts on business trust building. And I interviewed them a couple of years ago on the 13 characteristics of trust building that most people think they possess, but they don't. Mm. I can go into it, but there is documented research that people who command maximum trust produce a 300% greater result for themselves, their business, leadership, collaboration, and it's a soft skill that most people don't understand can be uh, quantified, can be instilled, installed, enhanced, improved. 
and it's very powerful and very simple. And you know what? Um, I was talking to Peter Diamandis over at Genius Network. And I he, knew Peter. Yeah, I know. And um, what he was saying, because I was asking him, well, you know, what is the fundamental skill set of the future, given that so many job seekers to the tune of a third, you know, will be displaced by robots in the next 10 years? And he said it's soft skills. And so I just wanted to reiterate what you're saying, that soft skills, you know, some people, I think, underestimate soft skills. Um, and when somebody says them, they kind of think more about hard skills. And what is the job posting asking for? Um, but what you're talking about here, Jay, I think is, is going to be of extraordinary help. It's non-verbalized, but these are, the, these are the criteria. And soft skills, I mean, I don't want to go deep into it, but I help a lot of experts in soft skills. Uh, Sally Hogshead, you know her. She's done all this work on how to be fascinating, and she's quantified it that fascinating people are, um, I think it's, it's, I don't remember the exact percentage, but infinitely more effective, successful, impactful. Uh, I can tell you a story which probably is worthwhile in a few minutes after I get through some of the content on being interested versus trying to be interesting mm. and how being interested genuinely and not trying to wait for the next break in the conversation to get your part in, but to really reflect, hear what people see. One of the big points that both Stevens make is listening is a lost art. Mm -hmm. Hearing what people say. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone says, how are you? Nobody gives a crap how you are. I always say, well, let's see. My left shoulder is hurting from arthritis. <laughs> I, uh, my wife and I had a big fight tonight, and I didn't get laid. Oh, my God. And I go on and on, and they look at me, and I say, did you really want to know? Oh, my God. You know, I lived in France for undergrad for a year, and if you say, how are you, in French, to someone you don't know, it's perceived as socially very rude because well, the culture assumes that you don't care how they are, and it's none of your business. Well, I have a strategy which I would like to also share with you. Wonderful. And it's been utilized in business very, very, very successfully. It's produced exceptionally uh, elevated and, and uh, stratospheric successes in, I don't know, four, four or 500 industries. But it's called the strategy of preeminence. We've done hours and hours on it. But basically, it's making yourself uh, – position as the most trusted advisor and in this case you'd have to adapt adopt and and translate it and, and extrapolate but it'd be you being the most trusted candidate they could get and and it's because you basically can put into words what the employer wants and that no one else has ever asked you can put in words the attributes that they're looking for and the and ask questions that go deeper connectivity wise about the company the job you can show not that just oh i know you went to uh harvard that's bullshit you want to be able to look and see the degree and and the people there and and what so you can refer and you can think about it and you can talk intelligently meaningfully and then listen this concept of the you attitude you guys only care about my answers, frankly, to the extent it will help you in your career. How I feel this moment, why I'm doing it doesn't really matter. Human beings are self-consumed. 
when you're interviewing, your interest has to be the company, the interviewer. If you can, you should say uh, this may be inappropriate if you're talking to HR, but if it's possible, I'd very much like to do two things. If the predecessor of the job has been promoted, I would love to have five minutes in your office with you around or privately talking to them to see their assessment so I can get a context. If the gentleman or the woman who runs the department is available, I know I'm not even uh, uh, deemed in the candidacy yet. This is just an interview, but I would love to, you know, to, to, to talk to them and learn what they're looking for and what they think makes the big difference. Because this is too, you know, I, I need to sell you on me. You know, I mean, you don't have to sell me on you, but I have to believe that I'm going to add enough value that it's going to work out successfully for both sides. And I think that that's the most important attribute and, and differentiator that I bring. I'm willing, if you're able to, if it's illegal and they can do it, I don't know, HR rules, to spend a half a day, you know, observing either the people in that job or the people that job services so I have a better understanding and appreciation. Can't hurt me. Worst case, if you don't give me the job, at least I'll have a better understanding if I apply for a similar job somewhere else. But if we are even contemplating a collaborative long-term, basically it's a partnership of sorts where I am going to bring my ability and my and my passion and my uh, and my dedication, and I'm going to try to grow it and and um, and direct it to the greatest outcome I can produce for you in that job and any other one that I hopefully earn. I mean, I think that attitude is assumptive, but it's very powerful, don't you think, Ashley? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, just... I hope this is down the line of what you want from me. A hundred percent. And, you know, anything, I mean, obviously, you, you know what you're doing. But one thing I just wanted to point out for everybody listening is every state has different laws. So one topic that I talk to them yeah. about is... If they get fired, every state has a different law around whether an employer can call another employer and find out if it was a termination. So this is just yet another one of those things that I think is worthwhile researching is, does your state uh, law permit you to come into a workplace as an unpaid worker and as a shadow? Um, because if, if that's the case, then that's another way to demonstrate your the way you've internalized and thought about the company and thought about what's possible for you to contribute to them and to make that kind of an offer. And then I'll give you an alternative, but I don't want it to come across <clears throat> as covert. Or you could say, can I buy uh, uh, a few hours of, of, of uh, the person's time at your, <laughs> in that job and interview them? If I want somebody who makes a million dollars, I give them $2,000 and say, can I have an hour and a half of your time? Yeah, why not? Take well, the money. But there's ways to really distinguish yourself. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, but there's more. When you're preeminent, you fall in love not with yourself and your greatness or your degree or the school you went to or the job you're interviewing for or from. You fall in love with the company you are going to help, but more importantly, the value of the service that they render to the market. And you start focusing on the integration of what you do and how in some way it ends up bringing 
value to the end user. And I wanted to say another thing. My work is with business building and with entrepreneurs and CEOs. But I told you my son, who's 50, has gotten all but one job he ever applied for, and half of them he was never the most qualified candidate. But one of the things you have to realize in marketing, there is a hierarchy of factors that you you try to harness. The first one is the headline. You guys think of a headline as, you know, the big glob of words at the top of an ad or a website or a catalog, and it is, but it also is the first phrases that you utter when you have any interaction with anybody. It's the first, uh, it's the first paragraph of a letter or a resume, and I'm not getting into resume writing, but the key to most headlines is that they have to be focused on the best interests of the other side. They have to offer a benefit that the other side wants and are willing to sincerely explore and examine the offer to see if they have the ability to fulfill on it. And you have to be able to think as if you were in their shoes. There's a very famous advertising agency. If you go in their office, the president has a great big picture on his wall of a massive wide mouth bass and in that mouth is a huge piece of apple pie and you of course ask him what's the deal and his answer is if you're going fishing for big mouth bass would you use apple pie so you have to realize uh, uh, that you have to be in alignment with what that person wants not just what you want to tell them, not just what you think is cool about you, mm. not just that I've got so much ability and I went to Harvard and got a 7.4. Yes. So you got to be able to show the reasons why whatever skills or lack of skills you bring to the party are worthy and worthwhile and are more valuable, not just short-term but long-term, or more valuable in rapid integration, or more valuable in productive yield, or more valuable in collaboration with everyone else that job requires, or more valuable in some ways so that you don't have to make, it's not incumbent on them to understand why. It is your opportunity and obligation to show them. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's just so beautiful the way that you're uh, – What is it Dan Kennedy that said WIIFM, what's in it for me, radio? Yes, that, yes. That's him? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. So it's a great example. Everybody's tuned into WIIFM, what's in it for me, radio, and I think that the better job seekers are the ones that are tuned into that radio station for the other person and really focused on being of service of the highest value possible through their communication. What, what is your thought? You're having a thought, Jay. I'm curious now. Well, I'm thinking about <laughs> – Two things that track on that, but they also connect to the past. I'm still on only the first of seven or eight subjects, but this I'll is interesting. I'll you here as long as you'll take me, so hey. Well, let me do this, and then you can add it accordingly. Yeah. But I'm thinking that the biggest void that I've seen in a lot of younger millennials is critical thinking. Mm. And critical thinking is not the ability to think about technology. 
but it's the ability to think about what's going on in a situation and the realization that any two people having a discussion, there's two totally different dialogues going on. There's two total realities going on. There's two totally definitions of almost every word based on your experience and and the picture that's being painted on the palette of your mind. Uh, I'll use a crass example, but it's, it's probably easy enough. Uh, I used to do an enormous number of very expensive business building seminars, and I have a lot of people come, and they paid a lot of money. I had a process that about halfway, I'd come into one session late, and I'd apologize and say, for you men out there and for you women, I'm sorry, but I just saw the most absolutely stunningly beautiful woman in the lobby, and I was mesmerized. Then I'd start talking about anything else, and I'd go back 10 minutes later and say, I have a curious question. I'm going to randomly go around the room and ask, what came to mind? What was the picture that came to mind when I said stunningly beautiful woman? And if there were 20 people that I canvassed, some had uh, ethnicity, some had hair, some had some rather embarrassing anatomical issues, some had dress, women were more conservative by and large, but no two had the same definition. We have a whole segment I did, I think it's six hours, on what value means to the other side. It's very deep, and it goes into understanding that you've got to translate it. You've got to communicate on my landscape, not yours. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to paint, seed my grass in your yard. You're trying to seed yours in mine. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got to have uh, the right philosophical and strategic understanding. You're, You're trying deeply to comprehend the the lifeblood, the dynamic, the culture, the 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 uh, the drives, the, the 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 profiles of what in that organization makes it great, and what what kind of great people. Now let me talk about greatness for a minute because this goes to this. So I believe every human being is innately. Uh, uh, gifted with greatness in their DNA, not just greatness in one dimension, but greatness in a spectrum, greatness in in uh, uh, job, career, entrepreneurial performance, greatness as a human being, greatness as a friend, greatness as a partner, greatness as a lover, greatness as a uh, a uh, a model for others, greatness as someone who adds value doesn't take it out of being alive in this world. They add oxygen. They don't they don't siphon it away. But only about three percent of anybody achieve what I would even call greatness in any aspect of their career. Now, why is there that big delta? Why is there that gap? I would answer that if you let me. May I? Please do. We're all here. So it's simple, but it's complex. Nobody ever taught you what greatness should look like in each of those multitudes of areas. What it should feel like. What it should. What it should be uh, uh, fueled like inside here and here. 
what your reference needs to be shifted to, what it should sound like coming out, what it should be received like so that you can uh, validate and and course correct if you're not achieving it. That's the first thing. Second, if you are fortunate enough to see the gaps, nobody validates which elements of your life you have the biggest uh, uh, delta because you may want to really work on your personality first or your uh, external capability to focus first or your ability to listen first because not only are those factors going to amplify and multiply your success in your job and in your career progression, but they are going to implement or excuse me, impact and dramatically enhance your success in all the other categories. You have to figure what you have to work on first that, that, that flows through everything. Second, when you figure what you have to work on, then you have to figure how to get there. And most people think they have to uh, pole vault, and that's so very difficult. What they really have to do is figure the safest stair step because it's not, it's not something that will happen instantly. And you have to realize any of you have got uh, children or any of you have ever been around babies because you were one once, when a baby tries to learn to talk, walk, eat, poop, ride a bike, you're terrible. You flop. So you've got to give yourself permission. Anybody who plays sports, unless you're really gifted, you didn't drive a golf ball straight in the beginning. You didn't play, uh, you know, sub, uh, you know, sub pro tennis. You didn't, you didn't pump 400 pounds in the beginning. And it's this, you've got to give yourself permission that even if you're, uh, you know, a driving jock, that it's a process. Think about, uh, ships going through the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal. They don't go like that from one ocean to the other. They go like that. But first thing is to figure out what greatness should look like in all the categories of your life that you want. You don't, you don't have to be great. You have to reconcile if you're not great, that you have the ability to be great. And then if you don't want to uh, realize it, uh, exercise it, develop it, nourish it, nurture it, that's your prerogative. But if you do, then you have to look at the optional ways to get there and find the safest, not the hardest. Next, you've got to give yourself permission that it's a process. It's not a single uh, decision that instantly produces the optimal outcome. Finally, you need someone, colleague, partner, uh, employer, mentor, uh, coach, to hold you uh, to the standards you have the deservedness to reach. I believe most people unintentionally, un, uh, undeservedly, and, and unknowingly limit, restrict, constrain. Uh, if, if you talk about careers, the, the scope of career they could have, the, the satisfaction, both financial compensation and fulfillment psychic, the, the progression they could have, the impact they could have, because they don't know how to do it differently. Does that make sense, Ashley? Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to, to even add to that, I think one amazing thing about what you're saying with greatness that 
I think about a lot is, you know, a lot of people will look at any sort of success and just think that person is just great, but usually they've failed so much more and they've been willing to deal with the pain of the failure. And the biggest question is not what makes you, what will make you great, or this is just my opinion, I would love your feedback, but really what pain are you willing to deal with, right? Because some people want to lose 20 pounds and have a great body, but they don't want to deal with the pain of saying no to that slice of pizza. I know I don't. I love pizza. So, you know, it's like when it comes to greatness, do you have anything to say about or to add about how do you decide what makes you great or what path to take? Because a lot of the times I think it's about what pain you are or are not willing to take on. And I will give you, uh, I'll address that from a couple points. Yeah. I think it's also what you think is painful that might really be more pleasurable if you re, uh, reframe it or recontextualize it, number one. Number two, uh, and I, I temporarily lost my train of thought, but let me just, this is, it was a really important point, so give me one second. Uh, I think that uh, most people, <clears throat> well, we wrote a book, it was called The Sticking Point Solution. And it was really designed for businesses, but I'm going to translate it for all your uh, viewers, listeners, colleagues. Uh, it was designed to show a, a company the nine ways most companies get stuck in the revenue generation. And we added another dimension. You could be successfully stuck. A lot of your people could be stuck doing well, but nowhere close to the dual capacity. Realize this, money alone isn't necessarily success in life. I come from, I'm a baby boomer. Our parents told us we wanted to be doctors and lawyers. I got married at 18 and didn't have that choice. I got thrown into the, we had a baby right away and got thrown into the foray with no skill. It's a lot different story for a different interview. But um, most of my colleagues that did it for their parents ended up being miserable at 50 or 60 and they couldn't get off the merry-go-round. So you, you need to factor not just money, but, but psychic enrichment, number one. You need to realize that you might be settling for a fraction of a fraction of what you are capable of achieving, number two. You need to understand that uh, there are a lot of ways to improve yourself that are easy. I mean, everybody should read the book. It's old. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Awesome. Everyone should read it twice because yeah. it really is a is a much more eloquent explanation of what I'm saying. And it just says, if you're more interested than interesting, if you're sincerely engaged, you've already won half the battle because most people are so busy telling you how great they are or or are compensating for their insecurities, which are undeserved, because you have so much potential and capability. Remember, no, everyone's got 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. A few people may have greater IQ or EQ, mm -hmm. but that's not really the denominator. It's how well you harness your attributes and externally focus them not internally. You're not what it's all about. They are. But how you can bring greater benefit, advantage, or a value to them 
based on what they value. Two more things I'll say, and then I'll try to go to the next point, all right? You are part of a very impressive group, and you really have mastermind groups. And the mastermind groups are made up of people from a multiple of disciplines that have been in different situations that you are either encountering or will or have, and they're coming at it from different experiences and solutions. I recommend that everybody out there build themselves a mastermind alliance and don't limit it to your age group. It's amazing. Go to people who are who care a lot about our future. So self-servingly, we care a lot about your success. Do you understand that? Mm. We care a lot about you being engaged and passionate because the fate of my children who are your age and older, the fate of your children who long past were on this earth will be, I mean, and I think that goes to having more of a worldview. And I've got a lot of stuff I've done on worldview and I'll send you all of them. And it helps when you understand our place in the cosmos and that it's really not about you. It's about so much more that is so much more important. You get excited and you get, you, you want to be relevant, but you don't want to be the center of the universe. Also, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of quotes. I can't, I'll paraphrase them, but you really are only as good as the quality of people you hang out with. And if you decide you want a life that is um, greater, richer in every denomination of, of wealth, financial, psychic, uh, you know, health, you got to hang with people that understand more than you because they will bring you up. People, no net, net not, to abandon your your current associations, but stretch and strain. I've been blessed. I've had more mentors twice my age who I listened to. I would work sometimes all night so I could sit in people's offices at my own expense and watch them do business because I was young and they wanted to teach me. But But your investment in college is worthy, but you really didn't get trained on how to be great at interacting with people. You didn't really get trained on how to add massive value. You didn't get trained on how to view uh, the other side's needs and, and goals and concerns. You didn't get trained in listening. Uh, I do a lot of work in Asia and some in, um, in, um, Latin America, and it's interesting because their educational system is rote. It's memorization. If I tell you what's 12 divided by 17 plus 6, add add 23, divide by 4, square root, they'll go. But if I say this is to this as this is to what, they're dumbfounded. Deer in the headlights. They don't understand correlations, implications. I try to understand, and I've been very blessed because I've been through tens of thousands of experiences, scenarios, dynamics, interactions, what's going on in that other mind, what they're thinking. If I do this, they do that. And it's not manipulative. It's grasping the dynamics of what's going on. But if you're willing to do what no one else is and you're willing to prepare, but not just by, you know, bumping up on your 
on the job. I'd also look at all the job openings, call, uh, even if they're similar, and do a mock interview and see what people ask you, see what I would want to have that. I would want to have such an advantage in understanding myself, in understanding my take on the job, in understanding how to how to subordinate that and put them in the center. And I can go on and on, but it's probably enough to start with, isn't it, on that subject? Yeah, I mean, what an amazing contribution. Just the topic of uh, really getting in touch with, uh, God, I'm just trying to even vocalize what I've heard from you, really getting in touch with how to be in the mind of someone else and how to genuinely, genuinely be interested in communicating with them about what they need. Um, that's just what I'm continuing to hear from you. Well, I'll tell a story now. It might take long and you can yeah. have it. How about it? But so this is a true story and it was pro. I'll tell you two true stories. One is how I spent $500,000 on therapy and the one realization I got that was worth 10 times that. And the other is how I learned uh, what I would call that everything you want, all you have to do is be the polar opposite. Which one do you want to hear first? I think the first one with the half million dollars in therapy sounds pretty interesting. Okay, I got started at age 18. Uh, I was very successful very early, and I thought it would make me happy, and I was miserable. I had cars, women, houses, too many things, and I was miserable, and I was making a lot of money. And I had a midlife crisis at 40, another one at 50, and another one at 60 because I started young. By the time I got to 60, I got tired of paying for 55 minutes, and right when I was on the precipice of a breakthrough, them saying, oh, time's up. You know, we'll pick up your life next week, and we all just sort of freeze your life, even though we've teased you to the, you know, and you're you're ready to jump off the cliff. Got to leave. And so the last time I bought the therapist for a whole week, (laughs) and my deal with him was if I didn't use it, I was going to send effed up people that I liked who would never go because they were too proud or too poor. And he would get this array of fascinatingly screwy people. But when I was ready, I'd go for three or four hours. And I would talk it through until I came up with an answer. And I'd ask questions, not about me always, but about life, about meaning, about purpose, about uh, about erroneous assumptions we have. And I got one answer that transformed my life. And I've been able to reinforce that and reconfirm it from lots of other people. He said that most human beings are end product oriented, meaning we want to have the best job. We want to have the most beautiful husband, wife. We want the greatest prestige. We want the nicest cars, the best house, the the most toys or with millennials, the most life experiences because you're experiential oriented. Mm -hmm. If you're unlucky enough to get that for that reason only, it's anticlimactic. You'll never be satiated for more than a short period of time. The heavens aren't going to open. The angels aren't going to sing nirvana, uh, uh, contentment, um, uh, happiness, and joy isn't going to be omnipresent. It's just going to be another day. Mm-hmm. The real meaning of life is the process. This conversation is as good as it gets. 
And it's wonderful that I'm having a conversation with you that will be leveraged to maybe 500,000 people that I can polarize. And polarize means galvanize to have them either think deeply about what they want to do different or think deeply about what they want to keep doing. And then I'm, uh, uh, I'm a, a, a worthless waste of their time. It doesn't matter as long as they, I can provoke them into thinking. Yeah. And confirming or questioning their reality. Yeah. But if I was talking, we have a, we have a process. When I go to Asia, I get to go first class on any, any plane I want. So they have great wines I drink. So first day I, I hydrate and sleep for 15 hours. Yeah. Yeah. The next day I go for half a day and I sit in the lobby smiling at people, smiling until they, they smile back. Greatly joyous. Then I ride the elevator for three hours up and down continuously doing the same thing. And then I get up on the floors and I talk to the housekeepers and the, and the servers. And it's great joy for me, but being acknowledged is so wonderful for people uh, who do things. My wife hates me. I read the obituaries every Sunday. She thinks I'm morose. I'm not. I don't read the, the big ones about the icons. I read the little ones about the men and women who had meaningful lives that were really important, but no one really, really appreciated them other than their local. The ones that were, you know, teacher for 58 years, taught the choir, you know, were, were, ran the Girl Scouts, uh, you know, gave it, it, and it made a difference in life. I think that everyone is relevant. And a lot of times, I think it's not a a condemnation, but I think that one of the greatest attributes that your generation could expand and develop and, um, and, uh, master is, is, uh, more humility and humanity. More focus on the fact that everyone matters and everyone has a role and it's quite profound. And they all have hopes and dreams. I travel the world and everybody's the same. The, 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 the people working want to do better. They, and the ones that are attracted to me want to add more value to their, to their market. They just don't know what it looks like and they need guidance. They want greater successes and security and greater lives for their children. And, and I think that if we realize that we're part of a much bigger, uh, a bigger picture and that if we embrace it and don't become uh, insulated and just self-focused, it makes living a lot more satisfying, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get too much ideological or philosophical, but you want me to move to another subject? Yeah. And just to cap this off, Jay, I was almost going to tell you this on our phone call the other day that, I wrote an article about how I went to a marathon with a friend or a triathlon. He was running a triathlon and um, I'm not into that kind of stuff. I'll go to the gym, but I'm not going to go do an Ironman or anything like that. Just not for me, but I was cheering him on in the sidelines and at the end, I just wrote about this experience and towards the end, this, this woman, I believe it was a woman, she came out, she was cheering so hard. I've never seen another person. I mean, her head was falling off. And I, I, I finally, when she calmed down, I came over. I said, "Hey, who are you cheering, cheering for? Who's who's here? You know?" And her answer was one of the best experiences I've ever had. She said, "Nobody." 
she said, I'm not here for anybody. I just just decided to come and cheer. And it was the most moving experience because there was a guy who didn't have a leg, you know, complete. And, and he was running, and she was cheering, and she cheered for him. And I watched all of these runners towards the end of the race, you know, the running portion, getting so much motivation because of this random stranger not there for anybody in particular, just cheering. And the person said to me, they said, watch, try it on. It feels really good. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm all for a trial. And I, st- I stood next to this woman, and we lost it. We were like, go. Oh. I had no voice for, like, days after. And I remember starting to cry, like, like just cheering my heart out. And I just the, – the point of the article I wrote was to just celebrate somebody, really, and see how it feels. And – what it can do for you and putting you into your authentic nature and into, into who you really are. And, um, and I think what your, your story is really is just talking about that and really acknowledging all of these different people with no attachment for any personal gain. It, it's, I, I think so. I think that what I've seen in a lot of people is they're afraid to be vulnerable and they're afraid to be childlike. I don't mean stupid and, do nasty uh, uh, things or crass things, but you know to have possibilities to 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 uh, relish little you know little wins and and not self deprecate and and be it be and right and cheer for everyone. When I started job hunt coaching, I remember thinking it's all logistics and follow this and see this many people and do that. But it's not. It's not, exactly. And it wasn't until I started doing some – I did a couple seminars in person, and the audience told me that what they did with the inspiration they took home. And I I used to think it sounded so cheesy, like I inspired you, but what is that going to turn into? But it's only until the recent years that I've really been able to grasp but that is the most important thing because when you activate that energy in someone, there's so much that can come through for them. So I love what you're talking about. I'm going to pick another one. Yeah. How about it? Okay. You asked me how to enhance your networking conversations. Yes. Well, I think the first is, is what is your motivation? If your motivation is just to have a lot of connections that you don't bring value to, that's pretty uh, vacuous. So how can you bring value, again, denominated by them? Uh, I made it a point when I started out, and I was a lot younger than your audience, I would contact people in successful roles, and I would, I would very honestly tell them that I really admired what they'd done, and I would love to learn any element of their you know, of their strategy, their belief system. And I would do whatever was fair compensation, but could I pick their mind for an hour or two? Could I take them to lunch? And I would be very self-effacing that I want very badly to develop, uh, uh, you know, skill set. Now in networking, I'll give you something very powerful. And this is a, a universal tool that I think is underutilized. I call it the Aikido School of Marketing. You know what Aikido is? I've heard it before. I don't know if it was that you. It's a martial arts uh, technique that uses the power of the enemy against the enemy. In this case, the power of the weakness. So 
if you authentically, not covertly, went to people who were successful, and success is relative. You don't have to go to Bill Gates, and you don't have to go to Warren Buffett, which is what everyone would do, although you can try. Take someone that is decisively more successful in life and uh, than you are right now and contact them and just tell them, I want to make my career successful. And don't just say, I, I, for me, say, but I need, I need to learn, first of all, how to add value, how to be very externally focused. Because everybody's a leader, whether your title, you're either a leader or a follower of others, whether your title is that or not. And then say, and I'd really love to learn how to build relationships as opposed to a network with a lot of other people who could stimulate me, who over time uh, would have enough uh, respect for what I bring to them that they would refer me or introduce me, not necessarily to people that would make me money or uh, give me a job, but it would make me better. That would make me better. And I would love your recommendations on how to do that authentically. Mm. And when you put yourself openly weak, but, but strong enough to ask for help and you do it with humility, a lot of people will respond. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and the one issue that I think a lot of job seekers come against is when they don't get a job, they say, can you give me feedback? And, I talked to a lot of them about how there's legal liability for an employer yeah. and why they didn't hire you. So I think what you're doing is basically skipping over that by being so vulnerable that you're accessing a human connection and not a professional one necessarily only. And, and what you would do also, I'll give you a killer suggestion I just came up with. So let's say that you're in a waiting room with many other people who might be scheduled for an initial appointment. Yeah. I don't know that to happen but it does happen sometimes. I would get the names of everybody else, and if you don't get the job afterwards, I'd call them and find out what they, whether they got it and why they thought they got it, if they didn't get it, why they thought they got they didn't get it, and just reflect on that. That's amazing. And, you know, you actually are touching on a question about mastermind, which is, you know, if I was for, if I was a job seeker forming a mastermind right now, I would say, well, I want President Obama. You know, like I want sure. – so how do you reach the right – People that, because I think there is such a thing as an overreach, not in a place where you. Know, I think there's an arrogance, ignorance, and um, and and undeserved. And by the way, I think we're all, I think we're all magnificent. But I think we we aspire sometimes. Nothing wrong with high aspirations, but there's everything wrong with trying to do it in one step. Exactly. So build yourself up to that. So if you're basically making 50 grand in a job and you want to try to get to a $75,000 job, I would build relationships with people who either have those or are above those or are running smaller companies that have that. And I would build relationships with absolute integrity that you want to learn. You're not there just to mine uh, connections because that's what most people do. And frankly, 
it's disgusting, it's not successful, it's it it's uh, a disservice to yourself. Most people are better than that. And I actually laugh inside when I see people doing such uh, transparent and crass things. Everything should be based on authenticity and intent. And the intent's to grow, to grow. I mean, the, the key is everybody at all times in their life should see themselves in a duality. You're both a, a student and a teacher all the time. Mm-hmm. And you want to learn and you want to reflect. And the problem with learning, if you don't hear, if you don't really have impressions, if you just write uh, literal things and you don't let your mind uh, engage on what that means in your life and what that means you might want to do or follow up on. And if you don't give yourself time to think deeply after something happened, every time I have an interaction with anybody, I try to think about what did I learn from that person? Hmm. What did I do myself that was inappropriate that breached what I stand for? What do I admire about that person that I don't possess, and and and, and how does it manifest in a way that really impacted me? And I suggest everybody make a list of everybody in their life, previous employers, people they deal with, friends, uh, uh, providers. If they go to the bike shop or uh, the surf shop or the tennis shop, who do they really admire for reasons that are qualitative, authenticity? people that try to help them, guide them, people who seem to be enjoying life at a level of richness and genuineness that they're not. But in building networks, you can't try to build a network. You try to build contributions. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you don't have anything to contribute, you use humility and, and honesty to explain that you are right now not in the position to add a lot, but you, uh, if if they will invest in you some of their knowledge, time, guidance, you promise you will be to add value and that you will add value multiplied ten times over. It's a, This is exactly what, what my reality was. I think getting started was... You know, I didn't go to Harvard, and I think that what happens sometimes is when you go to a top institution, perhaps you think you can get by on paper, or maybe you have the best companies on your resume, and you think those are going to speak for themselves. You don't have to do those soft skills that are going to connect you to people. And I think that's one of the biggest blessings I have is going to a small liberal arts college, moving to a city like D.C., not knowing anybody, and knowing that I don't have that top degree to fall back on. All I had to fall back on was my own vulnerability and myself, and that opened so many more doors, and it put a hustle in me to have more conversations and to connect more deeply because I knew that I didn't have the paperwork to get by on. And so I love that you're kind of popping that limited belief system that a lot of people will be telling themselves as they're listening. Well, I didn't, I didn't go to this school or I don't, I didn't have. I didn't go to any school. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No one asked me where I went to school. No one asked me, well, what are you trained in now? And they didn't after, you know, when I was very young, I had no skill sets and I had a belief 
belief in myself. If you don't have, I mean, arrogance, conceit is not confidence and faith. Yeah. Here's, here's a distinction that's sort of interesting. Whether your audience wants to be a salesman or woman or not, every human being is actually on a commission. And, and the commission is the productivity, the value that you add over anyone else who could take that job. And if you don't understand that, that you are really, uh, you are a performance-based salesperson qualitatively selling your value through your actions and your contributions and your interactions. And then another distinction that's sort of interesting, that what security really is, is not a job with a big company and it's not a big title. It's basically the faith, the trust, the confidence, the certainty you have in yourself, your current and your emerging abilities and your capability of performing. That's all security is. Yeah, I've, I've told so many people I find more security through entrepreneurship than I ever did in the corporate world. And I think it's just a relationship with yourself that you can form along the way. Um, I was, I wanted to ask you one question, actually. Sure, Jared. go ahead. What can somebody say when they just don't know the answer? It's beyond, like, I need to learn that. It's it's straight up. Like, for example, I... A scenario. Yeah. Oh, do you have a scenario or do you want one? Give me the scenario. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, I when I was interviewing, I got an interview at McKinsey, and um, I made it through the second round, and they asked me how many golf balls fit on an airplane. You know, typical management consulting, you know, an analysis question. I had no idea that this was even an, an, a live interview question anywhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you know, this is the approach, and now I know it well. I didn't know what to say to that. I mean. I remember showing them how my mind works and saying, well, is it a Boeing 747? And kind of talking about how I would approach how many golf balls fit in an airplane. But what if it's something kind of perplexing like that? Or What, what, what is the right answer, first of all? I, I, guess, I mean, that was my... That was oh, what the, is, did you get the job? No, I didn't get the job. This was, was, that the, was that the reason? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't answer the question. I mean, I, what, what, what would the right answer have been? They wanted me to show them my process and walk them through how I would have calculated it. So one thing I did right was at the beginning I said, well, is it a Boeing 747? Like asking questions to help them see where my mind would go in solving the problem. Um, but to be honest, if I had never been exposed to management consulting questions and I didn't, because that's such a bizarre question to be asked if you don't realize that this is their approach, asking. Okay, well, let me give you, let me give you an answer. Yeah. The more you master critical thinking, and there's something else that most people do that is is unnecessary. It is programmed into our natural uh, style, but it's dangerous, and that is they respond immediately. You have the right to reflect. You have the right to say, okay, let me think for a minute, or let me reflect and you could say let me ask you some questions first of all let's start with the golf balls give me the diameter give me what happens to them under pressure are they going to be in the in the uh uh storage below are they going to be in the top can we put them in with the uh pilot can we stick them in the bathroom are people going to be riding on the plane at the same time 
Okay. Start with that. See, I need to know that. Pardon? <laughs> that was pretty good. You got yeah. the job right then. And then I'd say, okay, now I need to know not what kind of plane. doesn't matter. I need to know the available allocated, um, where's the space, and what kind of configuration is it. So I know if the golf balls can be in the boxes stacked, or they can be squeezed. I got to know if I can put them in the baggage above, I got to know them if I can stick them in the, in the, um, in the, but I'm trained in critical thinking. You understand that? Yeah. I, one thing I thought about with this is also knowing the formula for a cube because the way that they're stacked, but I, but you don't have to know it. You can say, do you mind telling me what the formula is? I don't, you know, I didn't bring my calculus uh, book in my pocket, but I really will do it and not be cynical but I think my answer was pretty good, didn't you? Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And but exactly. but that's, it's not that I understand that kind of question. It's that I understand how to think critically and have a 360 view and not answer it, but turn it to a question to them. Mm-hmm. And I love, actually, that's a really interesting point, too, is like, when do you turn it to them? Like, I loved what you just did there was you started asking them questions. So there's two things I took from what you said. Number one is the pause. I need to exercise that. I'm the queen of just, I'm always, my mind's fast and I just go. And it's not always the best run. Yes. I find mistakes in business, right? Most of the time. But I would say you talked about the pause and then you talked about asking questions. So how do you kind of refer back to them and kind of bring them with you to help you get a better answer? Does that make sense? It does, but... Uh, do me a favor because I like this. Why don't you role play me for a minute so I can, my, I, 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 rather than uh, expending two minutes quietly thinking about it, let's just see in real time if I can figure out or demonstrate because I have to think about it. But why don't you say, give me a scenario. I'm sitting across from you, internally sweating, but yeah. confident. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're in, well, so do you want a scenario kind of like the McKinsey question, like a tough question, like, well, you want to know, yeah, me, you could, yeah, you could say, uh, let's take that. You could say, I want to answer that, but I would like to ask you a question. Okay. And I'd say, um, for, for both of our benefits, it's very easy to answer that in a multiplicity of ways. You obviously know that because you probably ask it of a thousand people. Help me understand what you're trying to gain or discern by the question so I can answer it. I can demonstrate either ability and uh, proficiency at thinking the way you want or not. But rather than putting me in an abstract, amorphous question that that I don't think you would answer that without calibration if you're a quality consultant because really and truly – whatever the assumption is, everything that flows from it is going to either be accurate or flawed. And I don't think I would do you, your your interview, or myself a service if I tried to answer it abstractly. So give me a little more calibration. I yeah. would do that. Great. And I would do it not arrogantly, but just very humbly. Okay. I wouldn't try to go, I want to show you, because I'd say, I need, I need clarification. Do you go in and just give them a solution? to a problem without knowing the foundational facts, the, you know, the, the factors, the, the, uh, the, the constraints, the, I doubt it. And if I did that to you right now, I would, 
I wouldn't even hire me. I would would withdraw if I answered that question abstractly because that would be a disservice. That would demonstrate to you. And I'd say this, you know, there's a great story about Henry Ford. You know it? No. I mean, Henry Ford would take people out to lunch before he hired them. Hmm. And he would watch. If they salted their food before they tasted it, he wouldn't hire them. Huh. Because they would make a decision without understanding the basis. Huh. So I just think that there's a very fine line in being controlled or controlling a situation. And it's very, there's an even finer line in doing it with authenticity and always having the best intent for the outcome for the other side. But what I said is true, wasn't it? Yeah, it reminds me, um, I was going to ask you because I interviewed at the White House when I was younger. Okay. The most nervous I'd ever been. And? Grew up outside. And I, okay. I caught that on the security camera. This was before or after? Before. And it was really glamorous. And they asked me, tell me about a time when you failed. So seemingly easy question. But to be honest, I didn't have a lot of work experience to draw back on a time that I had failed in my career, really. It wasn't that I'd been succeeding so much the whole time. It was that there just wasn't anything in my memory that was like a huge botch. So, But let me tell you what I think. Uh, and I, I'm pretty intuitively certain of this, but not empirical. So this is my belief. When you ethically turn the table and not refuse to answer, but show a multitude of thought processes like, okay, are you asking me about uh, a... A personal experience? Are you asking me about a career experience? Are you asking me about a goal I set and was un- unable to achieve? Are you asking me about and I and, and you'd show the depth of your thought process by asking them to clarify what they want. Don't you think that's interesting? Yeah, I love that. You're just giving it dimension, really. Yeah, and you're showing that you think that you're playing three dimensional chess, and they're asking you. Tell me about the worst checker game you lost. It's like, well, what does worse mean to you? Right. How you define it? Are you talking about perhaps when I fit, when I finished third and not first, you know, in the state finals? Or are you asking about when I got one B minus <clears throat> out of straight A's uh, in my senior class? Or are you asking about? And you could do this where you control the positive. Are you asking me about when I set a goal of losing 20 pounds and I only lost 15? Are you asking me about when uh, I applied to 20 schools uh, that were almost impossible and only got in 15? Oh, my gosh, I love that. Are you asking when I strive for an A-plus and got an A? (laughs) That's great. But I think that that kind of answer, see, again, what we – and I think this is a great gift to your audience. Very fine line. It's not arrogant. I don't do anything with arrogance. Mm. But I look instantly at the situation, and I turn the question into a corresponding question designed to demonstrate the, the, spec, the 
uh, not spectacle, but spectrum of understanding and achievement that I have while underscoring what they want, but in a context they're not used to. When you can bring, I mean, Tony calls it not state change, but it means that uh, pattern interrupt. Mm-hmm. Everyone is going to be reasonably predictable in how they will deal with certain scenarios. Mm-hmm. One of the things that makes someone stand out favorably is qualitative unpredictability. Does that make sense? Can you explain like in an example? Sure. Just what you said. I bet if they ask any of these questions to the thousand other applicants over the years, 98 point something percent would just go, well, I guess it's when uh, I, uh, I didn't win the you know, queen of the prom or whatever. I would never answer a question without first wanting to know all the um, the relevant and the implicating and the and and the um, the necessary answers to give the right answer. I can't believe you gave prom queen like not getting prom queen. That's just too good. I think as it relates to this though. Do you have a methodology on, I mean, outside of asking questions to kind of deal with a question that feels intimidating or feels overwhelming, you know, a lot of people are asked about their biggest weakness, and obviously any smart person that's a hiring manager isn't going to hear that their biggest weakness is that they're a perfectionist and they're the best hire ever. That's not their weakness. So how do you recommend people answering this question? I've given some um, people in my courses this methodology. Uh, methodology is step number one, to share what happened. And then number two is to share. So, you know, for example, um, my biggest weakness is public speaking. Public speaking is a great example. And then number two, talking about what you decided to do to tackle it. So taking some sort of action. So in the past, one of my biggest public weakness or weaknesses was public speaking. And what I've done to deal with it is I took a, I joined Toastmasters and took a public speaking course. Uh, and then the third step is to talk about the progress that you've made. Since then, my colleagues have asked me to stand in front of a client, and that means a lot to me. And and then to kind of talk about moving forward, um, now I've been asked often to be the point person to talk in front of the client, and I've continued to join and stay into a Toastmasters. So um, obviously not perfect. I don't have any notes in front I like of- that answer. I, like, I think you're absolutely correct, and, and let me see if I have any – thing that would be, you know, uh, a different approach. But I think what you're saying is that you acknowledge something, but at the same breath, you connect two things. One, the remediation that you immediately, um, first of all, the recognition you had. I mean, I think it's very interesting if you could take the, the, the non-success and you can articulate into what it denominated. For example, I realized that I had whatever whatever public speaking, that's one thing, but you could take it to another level scientifically what it means that I had, uh, that I was fine in a group, but that I had uh, whatever it was. And so I took immediate action. I went to Dale Carnegie. I went to Toastmasters. I started forcing myself in my job to a volunteer to lead groups that were both business and uh, charitable. 
I did this and I did that. And I, and I could tell you, am I a hundred percent? No, but here's where I am today. And I think it's great before they ask you if, that you don't just stop at, at a, a static declaration of the problem, but you say that you take, I think that's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant answer. Can I ask you, <laughs> this might be something too. Can I ask you just as a reference, what would be a problem that you would have answered? To the interviewer? Uh, that's if I have an idea. I mean, are you asking me actually to come up with one? No, I'm just saying if you were interviewing, I might say that to him. I might say, yeah. that's so great. Give me an example of how you might answer that so I can understand directionally and also, you know, dimensionally how you would do it. Because I'm sure that in your life you had something. I mean, you're very impressive, but something. I mean, I would have fun with it, but I'm probably a little more both progressive and not unflappable, but uh, a different character. So I don't want to give dangerous suggestions, but a lot of things that people never had, they shock them and then they like it because that ballsiness or that self uh, confidence or that sense of really trying to be uh, qualitatively responsive to the intention of the question. Well, there's two dynamics, I think, to that approach. Number one is their generation and their mindset, because some people, if they're an interviewer, they feel like my door is closed and I'm deciding on you. And it's kind of like asking them too much about them will feel intrusive depending on their mindset, right? But secondly, it's also just your tone, right? So if you're coming from an energy of, hey, you know, this is a great question and I can answer it, but can you give me some insight on what would your approach be? I'm I'm curious to kind of hear from you about what you're looking for here. Or you could say without like two or three answers that you got from other people that you were, you can shake it up. Tell me ones that were that were deal killers and tell me ones that got them the job. And I'll tell you, I'll honestly answer once I see what you're looking for. Yeah. You can do a lot of things. Worst thing is they say no. And it's probably not somebody you want to work for anyhow. Isn't that the truth? And that's one of the biggest concepts that I um, share with so many job seekers is that they're so caught on whether they get the job or not, that they don't even realize, well, do they want to work for somebody like this? And they get into this scarcity mindset where it's like, this is the one. It's like, you don't know that. No, I mean, your life should be like a bus stop. You should not be a transient in, in jobs. You you need for your own self-worth and for your own uh validation to stay in a job long enough to make a contribution and prove that you can grow and be uh, a stable, valuable force. That has everything to do with your future, no matter if you go and start your own business. You don't want to go from here to there to there to there to there and not have any time to really prove to yourself your value. Because a lot of the stability factor is not it does it doesn't really have to be fear of losing something that you think is secure and uh and fear of going into something you won't succeed at even if you get it it's about staying in an environment long enough to demonstrate to the other side and yourself that you do have worth if they want if when you decide to quit they're either happy or neutral, then you didn't really add a lot of distinctive value to that company. Mm -hmm. Think about it. 
Yeah, and you, you were actually answering one of the biggest questions I get asked all the time is how to know when it's time to stay versus time to go. And I've often said as long as you're honing a skill set that you want to be growing and you're contributing and you feel like there's more for you to contribute, why would you go? And I think also you got to decide it's not – I would give you my uh, – you know, my belief system, and my belief system is that you grow or die. You grow or die as a human being. You grow or die as a, as a team member. And growth means you keep growing yourself and growing your contribution. So if a job doesn't have, I mean, big corporations don't give you raises arbitrarily upon great performance. They're structured, and it's whatever the range is at the time. But that doesn't mean you can't say, I would really, I know that it's not going to impact my income today. But in the desire and the, uh, and the, uh, belief that I can add more, I'd like to take on more either responsibility, opportunity, uh, and, and, and always, always, I mean, there's a, a, a really interesting section in the book Think and Grow Rich about uh, Charles Schwab. <clears throat> Charles Schwab was a low-level worker that worked for Andrew Carnegie when Andrew Carnegie was the titan of titans in the steel business. <clears throat> and Charles Schwab, interestingly, he'd stay late, he'd work, he'd take on all kinds of things he wasn't asked, he'd ask for more things. And th there's a, a segment called Going the Extra Mile. And most people who are young, they really don't want or understand that going the extra mile isn't just valuable for their employer. It's valuable for their growth, strengthen, fortifying their own, um, their own value. And I think a lot of people say, well, I'm not paid for that. Ultimately in life, you are paid for that. You may not get, it may be like a deferred bond that you're compounding and not getting the payoff yet, but you're always going to be paid for it. If you, uh, if you understand value creation as it is defined by the other side. Mm, amazing. Well, I know you have so many things to share and we have 20 minutes and I wanted to ask you all, and I know you, why don't you just take your points and ask me so I don't go and pick ones that are sub uh, relevant instead of the ones that are your most critical so I can add value. Well, so here's the reason I'm a career coach and not a life coach is because I think mindset is malleable and it can change any moment and you can ground someone and support someone in transformation, but they can shift the next day. I love people having something in their hands, um, not just the skill sets and growth that they get that translates onto their resume, but money. I want people to be able to negotiate a salary that really supports their lives and their growth and reflects the contribution they're making. So I'm curious if you have some strategies around negotiation. Um, I know I have my own that I've come up with, uh, not based on my own reading or expert knowledge, but based on things I've tried and have worked um, with. But I'm curious, what is your approach when an employer calls and says, congratulations, we're offering you the job, or, and it's at this salary and you're kind of disappointed, or congratulations, we're offering the job, it's at this salary and it's not negotiable. So, uh, Dealing with the disappointment and how do you work with that, and also dealing with the non-negotiability. Well, there's there's two things. When it's not non-negotiable, when you know there might be flexibility, <clears throat> you have to ask a couple questions. 
Number one, what did the last person make in that job? Number two, what are the ranges of um, increase that that job classification offers and at what intervals are they achievable? And what number three, what are the criteria <clears throat> upon which they are uh, they are earned? Number four, how do you define um, fulfillment of that criteria? Number five, what is the growth, if any, past that? I'd want to know things like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. I've never heard these questions before, so this is a fresh approach. And then I would say two things. If they won't tell you the rank, that if they won't tell you the last salary, you should be able to say, it seems reasonable that I know what this job has the capacity of taking me to if I don't get a promotion and what the, what the history of promotions are, both time-wise and what the path is from this job. So I know I'm not looking for really a job. I'd like to hope you're not looking for a job hunter. You're looking for someone who wants to invest their, um, their, their passion, their capacity, their skill, their growth in a career and that this, wherever I start is the begin is only the beginning. But it, in order for us to not be disappointed with one another, I think I'm asking questions for your benefit, probably more than mine. Help me decide how to answer you, whether to accept, whether to respectfully withdraw, whether to ask for more. And if you can't tell me what the last person was paid, <clears throat> if I don't know that there's, there's, you know, a band and I don't know what it, what one has to do to get from this part of the band to that. And I don't know that if this band is where you level off and there's almost no history of promotion from that department or that that department is a fast track, my decision is going to be based on that. And I would think you would be no different if you were in the receiving. Well, and can I ask you, Jay, when you Does say that makes was, sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I guess there's a couple nuances to that, right? Number one is when you're asking what was the last person paid, you mean at the end of their time in that role, meaning that they... You could ask at the end of the time. You could ask when they started. You could ask how long they were there. You can ask if their if they're background... See, I want to put my uh, knowledge and and logic as a deflector, not a mean negotiating tool, but just an equalizer, if that makes sense. Well, I think the only thing I would change about with what you just said, and you could correct me here, because no, um, the only thing I would change is probably starting off my communication about investing in a career and not just in a job, because I think that if you just come at it as a job seeker saying, hey, can you let me know what the last person Oh, made? no, no, I would have made that Start part off. of the first, but you're yeah. not going to get the offer until you've already previously, assume, assumingly, and I shouldn't have impl been implicit, I should have been explicit, that was covered earlier. I think that's got to be part of your your um, of your your driven purpose in the very beginning of the interview and theoretically that should be one of the reasons that they offer it to you so honestly tying back to it should be very congruent exactly yeah, no, i don't think we're disagreeing i'm just cutting short uh recognition and acknowledgement of those points got it i love what you said and i think 
you know, starting off by saying I'm really excited about this opportunity. seems like a great match. I'm really interested in investing my career into this, my energy, my full spectrum of talent into this long term. And looking what, what's, and we're looking for our mutual ROI. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking for a realistic uh, assessment of, of what I have to, not what I bring, but what I have to invest, you know, to, uh, to, you know, to optimize my value to you so I will thus optimize my reward from you. Yeah, exactly. That's not an unreasonable request. In yeah. fact, I think, excuse me, but I think failure to look out for your own interest in a humble and logical way is a mistake. Mm-hmm. And what about um, if it's but You don't have to accept it. I don't do a lot of this. I'm giving you my perspective. Yeah, but you've got a damn good perspective, Jay. I was reading top five executive coaches, and I know there's all these awards and things like this, but, yeah, I just think salary negotiation is one of the scariest things. And what about at the beginning in the early process? Let's say before the interview has happened or early into the first interview, they say, what are you looking to make? Maybe somebody doesn't want to put themselves at a disadvantage. You don't want to underprice. You don't want to overprice yourself. What do you say about that? Well, there's a number of ways um, – to answer that. And it, you could say, uh, I'm going to give you an answer that may sound a little bit uh, evasive. It's not. It, it, I mean, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a middle. And I think my answer is, what does the job, what does the job have the capacity to be worth assuming I am worthy and put like another back to them. Mm-hmm. And that what we found, we used to test a lot of headlines and I tested one time for a furniture store, 33 headlines when they walked in the door and we found one that increased successful closures in the size of the order by three times. And, and, and what it was, was not, uh, you know, can I help you? It's and what uh, what ad brought you into the store today? They couldn't just say I'm looking. They had to say, well, it was the four piece Italian bedroom set, and it gave total uh, power back to the salesperson to ask controlling questions. Is it uh, uh, replacing something? Did you just move? Is it are the rest of your furniture that? Is it, you know, yours? Is it one of your children's? Is it a house? Is it a, a condo? Whatever. And you got to be consultative. I think that there is a very interesting dynamic in all human interaction. There's control. There's being controlled. And there is balanced control. And I think you want to achieve balanced control. If you are at the receiving end, you're already starting out at a disadvantage, don't you think? Yeah, and technically, depending on how much value you can express that you have to offer as a job seeker to add value to them, most of the time you are in a responding responding role. One of the things we do, and I don't know what you teach, yeah. but when I counsel a client on anything, I walk them through logical probability than every variable I can think of. 
every objection, every impediment, everything they have to preempt. But I try to prepare them so it's naturally and automatically an authentic, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word response, but output from their brain and their mouth to any, there are very few scenarios they aren't prepared for. Mm-hmm. And I don't think most people prepare for, for, for literally any scenario that can occur. It's, it's almost as if, uh, and this is pretty interesting, Ashley, people who, who try to connect on the telephone with basically people trying to sell something, set an appointment, uh, get an interview, anything. They call a phone and they are shocked when they get voicemail. They have nothing prepared in their mind that is, that is meaningful, valuable, strategic, intriguing to leave as a message. And yet statistically, 95% of the time you're either going to get voicemail or a gatekeeper, aren't you? Yeah. So why in the world would you be shocked? Or would you be, oh, this is Jay Abraham. Well, would you call me back about the job? Yeah. No, I'm, t- I'm giving you serious. Insight. I'm laughing because I just, I, you're so right. No, I wouldn't. I mean, what's I would, everybody I counsel, I say, expect not, you'll be, you could be shocked if you get them. Yeah. And then you can say, I'm shocked to get you and have a prepared, but that's the least probable. The most probable of these two scenarios. Voicemail, gatekeeper. Yep. What are you going to say to them that's going to be compelling enough, unique enough, uh, valuable enough, and uh, intriguing enough or fascinating enough that they want to have a conversation? Yeah, and what do you think is the number one way to be fascinating? Uh, I think it starts by being interested and listening. I think it starts by going into any situation looking for uh, the fact that you're going to experience, learn something new, or you're going to meet somebody unique, and you're going to grow from that experience. So it's attitudinal, don't you? Yeah, I have a I have a, I, a concept that I made up. It's called the cuff. Okay. And I made it up because it's off the cuff. And basically what it means is that when you're talking about yourself, you drop something that is really interesting. And it could be anything. So, for example, if I started off this broadcast and I said, hey, everybody, we got Jay here. I just got back from lunch with Britney Spears, and then I just keep talking. It's a cuff. Like you drop something interesting. You drop a fascination bomb. And you can allow people to to look at it and touch it and want to ask you about it. And it's not about being manipulate, manipulative as much as it's about being intentional and really thinking about, well, what about you is different? What do you have to offer? Um, so for me, maybe it's fascinating that I speak Arabic or French or you know, whatever it is as it aligns with the job. I think everybody has some sort of cuff that they can drop when they talk about themselves. So um, I don't know if this, this kind of aligns with your concept of being fascinating and being interested in other people, but I also think being ready to drop that little quick conversational bomb about you that brings people closer um, with integrity. I like that, but I could give you any, I'll build it up one more level. It's just sort of, this is just stream of consciousness. Would it be funny if when they ask you the first or second question, you answered in Arabic or in French and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I just had an interview with somebody uh, where my multilingual 
uh, or my bilingual uh, was critical and I was demonstrating. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I'd do that one, but my, my Arabic's not good enough for that. But, yeah, I mean. But they wouldn't know that. Yeah, I mean, well, it depends on your integrity, right? Like, does that feel right for you? Does it feel right for you? You're doing whatever you felt was was reasonable. Yeah, but anyhow, so back at the ranch because I have about five more minutes. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to ask you, I took a few highlights away from this conversation that I want to just impress upon everybody, but what do you think is if, if a job seeker could sit down right now and they were struggling and they're making, you know, 30 to 40K and or 30 to 50K, what do you think is a question they should be asking you that you could answer right now? Well, how can I add more value? How can I add more value than the next level of income I want is worth? Got it. Because if they're making X, then there's a reason they're making X. And it's you could break it apart. It could be, first of all, that they're not putting enough value in it. Mm-hmm. Number two, that they chose a job well below their true capabilities, and it may be a job they needed for the stair step up. It may be that their esteem and their sense of self-worth is so low that they accepted a very, very low pay. I have a son who is 28 or 29, and he's darling, but he, he he's not as high on the self-esteem and he got, we got him trained in high tech and he's in New York and he did a a trial four month program for like four grand. And they came back to him with an offer of let's call it five grand. And he called me and said, dad, I hope I didn't do this wrong, but I told them that I thought about it and I felt like I was worth, and I showed them why, $6,500. And I said that I really don't want to be difficult, but I think that will make me uh, comfortable and secure enough to put even more effort into the new job and perform even higher. And I laughed for two reasons because he got it right away. And I thought he thought you probably could have gotten, you know, 8500 But I was very proud of him because he started – recognizing and respecting his own self-worth without being arrogant. Hmm. The only thing I didn't like about the answer, Jay, was that he undermined that he would give himself fully into it otherwise. You know what I mean? Well, he was a he was just a intern yeah. in other things. Amazing. So I think contextually, you have to judge it, and I might be deserving – the order, but thank you for critiquing it. Now, maybe right, maybe he did do that, but I don't think so. He's pretty, he's pretty uh, well exposed to my thinking. He's just yeah. see. I think if you don't, it's a very fine line, um, it, Ashley. You have to realize your value, and you can't realize your value until you correlate more to what your current job represents. And I don't mean. Uh, invoice processing. I mean, it's very powerful when you denominate it. So let's say every day you process, just as a hypothetical, uh, 400 invoices averaging uh, $600 a piece. So you're processing 24,000 or whatever the math is, invoices a day times five times four and a third. So now what is that? It's a hundred and a quarter times four and a third. 
uh, five. So every month, my company depends on me to accurately process uh, and either get out uh, $600,000 worth of revenue generation. So I am responsible for $7 million a year of income received from my company. Mm-hmm. That's a lot different than saying I'm responsible for handling payables. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, receivables, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, I always I talk about them. When I started charging and receiving the kind of fees I charge, it's because I started correlating what my um, what my involvement and my contributions to companies growth, success, profit had been worth. Mm-hmm. And I correlated that and I thought, I'm worth this. Yeah. And somebody says, how can you, uh, you know, how can you justify that? I was able to show that it was actually underpriced because I could only be with them for a short while, but my methods would endure for decades to come. Mm-hmm. And get an ROI for, that uh, was almost unimaginable over time well i would only get a short term but you have to you have to try to look at your value you know again if you can say if it's a little company they entrusted me to do this how valuable is that how essential is that how critical is that to the economic and and or the competitive well-being of the company you got to be able to see that your role your singular role and then you got to see how that role uh, facilitates to everybody else. The salespeople wouldn't get paid. The, you know, the company would have to go and borrow money at eight or nine percent if I didn't process and manage the, the receivable or whatever. You've got to get enough. I'm just giving you a couple of, of, of hypotheticals. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, and what you're really saying is talking about your accomplishments through a quantify, in a quantifiable way. You made yeah, the- quantification. Platitudes are meaningless. You know, I saved them this uh, money or this. But when you quantify, we were just I just had a meeting. I'm good friends with the very number one uh, Six Sigma man in the world. He got paid $60 million from one automobile company a couple of years ago because he was able to save them $2.5 billion a year, a year. Well, that's what you're talking about, Jay. You're talking about how can you create more value than the price that they're paying you. Yeah. yeah. And, and you got to be able to know what your value is worth and in dialogue with a prospective employer not be, well, I'm making this just say, well, when I look at, 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 you can say at this point in my emerging career, I'm looking at a career, not just as jobs. I'm looking at being able to grow and develop my value contribution. And I'm looking to be able to to represent an ROI to my my employer of whatever, 10 times what I'm paid every month or more. So I'm very interested in the answers to some of my questions for your benefit and also to align with my commitment to myself in what I need to bring to an employer so that I feel that I really am the superior choice and I really am the person for that job. 
Well, I know you have to go, Jay. I'm so thankful for your time. Yeah, this was so helpful. If you have one minute, I just want to go through for everybody and recap, or you can head out and I can just recap here. I'll stay a few minutes. Okay, so there's a few things that you said, Jay, that I just want to point out to everybody. Um, the first thing is just about the mastermind. I think that that's an amazing suggestion. I've never heard anybody – people talk about masterminds, but I've never heard someone just suggest to anybody to just go ahead and make one. Um, so maybe think about what value can you add to a mastermind group that maybe someone else can't. Um, and, and start to kind of come up with a list of people that you might want to ask if they want to meet on, let's say, a monthly basis and talk about your goals. I think that's amazing and really innovative. I also want to reiterate what Jay talked about with the pause. Um, there's so much power in the pause, and I know that a lot of presidents do that in famous speeches. And that's something that I was taught and I don't use often enough. If you don't know the answer to something, um, breathe. Don't cut yourself off from life. Breathe and take that pause. Um, and, and allow that pause to give you thinking and dimension. So I love what you said about that, Jay. And, uh, also just asking questions. So maybe you're scared of a question you just got. Buy yourself some time with a pause and with asking some questions so that you can guide yourself with them into an answer. I thought that was really powerful. And also just the concept of genuine curiosity. Um, really coming at this from a lens of genuine curiosity. And I don't know why this question is coming up, but uh, we talked about headlines. Jay, you talked about that. And a question I just want to leave everyone who's watching this with is, if you as a job seeker were a newspaper headline, if your life and what you have to offer was a newspaper headline, what would it be? Would well, it be great? And yeah. There's, there's a concept in headlines, and it's called so what? Yeah. You might think it's whatever you're saying uh, sounds great to the other side, but so what? Oh, I'd like to finish that one story as an epilogue because I think it yeah. has value. But yeah. wait till you're done. Yeah, no. Um, and the and I just wanted to say, you know, if you ask yourself, well, what is your newspaper headline? And you can ask other people, hey, if I was a walking newspaper headline as a professional, what would you say it is? Detail-oriented and all over it or chaotic or gossiping in the corner? Like, what is it that um, – it's saying, and are you happy with that? Are you happy with that? And if you're not, what do you want it to say? And what do you need to do with yourself to get to that point? What kind of growth do you need to do? What kind of people do you need to surround yourself with? Um, so th- those are my general kind of insights. You said something else, but I can't read my own writing, which is <laughs> lost in and of itself. So there's that. Okay. Do you want me to tell you the rest of that story? Yeah, please. Okay. This true story happened 25 years ago, transformed a very important part of my life. So I used to do lots of seminars all over the world. I still do China, still do Japan, just got back from Amsterdam, Paris, Vienna. Uh, But I don't really do it like I used to. I used to do it like a monster animal all the time. I was in Australia, and we'd flown in, and uh, my family was tired, but I couldn't sleep. We're staying at a very nice hotel, very very big hotel. I went up to the very top floor, which had a concierge suite. And there's only one other man in there. And uh, I liked, and I still like human beings and interaction. So I walked up to him and said, may I sit with you? He said, sure. And he was a very distinguished looking man. And I was in Australia. This is almost 30 years ago. And we were doing... Three $5,000 seminars sold out in three cities, and we were doing a $25,000 seminar sold out in another city. And that was really big back then. I'm talking 
when everyone else was selling $500 ones. But I didn't tell them that. I said, I'm in Australia on business, and uh, I, I teach business building. That was all I told him about him, myself. The next hour and a half were me asking him really interesting questions. And I found out that he traveled the world representing a very large multi-billion dollar um, pharmaceutical company out of Germany, calling on third world health ministers, selling population control systems. The first thing is I ask him what a population control system was was uh you know what it was entailed how many different systems they had i ask him how you get an appointment with a third world health minister how you sell it how it's priced how long it takes to you know to close it once it's sold how you disseminate it to the population who's not necessarily going to embrace it terribly enthusiastic whether the transaction was done above board or whether there were a lot of of other things that had to happen. I asked him uh, how he got into it. I asked him what he was going to do when he grew up because he had a Rolodex of every health minister in the world, in every country, third world or not. I asked him why he was there, and it turned out it was one of the most prestigious health minister conference in the world, and I, I should have known because there were security everywhere turns out that he was best friends with the health ministers and and uh senior government leaders uh i think he he was just throwing off not to be arrogant just in the dialogue then i asked him about what life was like in germany cost of living quality of schools what he did on vacation how long you'd work whether you'd retire again the value of this this Rolodex, this, we, I'm old enough to have had Rolodexes instead of the uh, phone list on your phone. And it was utterly, utterly um, charming and, and delightful for me, but I was drinking cognac, good cognac. And after about an hour and a half, I was pretty tipsy, and I knew that if I didn't excuse myself, uh, they would probably find me slumped over. So I stood up. Thanked him for his what time. To do. <laughs> started to walk away, got to the elevator, and he yelled out something that just gripped me. He said, I've got to tell you, swear to God, you are one of the most interesting men I've met in my life. Wow. And I told him two things about me. So I sort of leaned on the elevator uh, frame, hoping that when the door opened, there was an elevator inside and not a shaft. And I made a life recognition. If you want to be interesting, be interested. If you want to be relevant, make everyone relevant. If you want to be loved, love first. If you want to be trusted, trust. And it's sort of a mere opposite. That was a defining experience for me in my life. I hope it was worth it. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you so much. And um, I think I have so many questions, but I'll, I'll leave everyone with that. Okay. And um I hope I, I hope I open some windows of uh new thinking yeah. for everybody and I'd like to see everyone achieve not let's let's focus on the right outcome, not the job you want, but the opportunity to add the value you represent in an environment where you get 
rewarded both financially and personally and fulfilled. If you do that, you're going to be very successful. Thank you so much, Jay. You're welcome. Hey there, it's Ashley Stahl, and I have had such an interesting week. I'm so excited to be talking to you about it. I went to a bunch of conferences. I've been traveling around. I've met so many interesting people, and one of the things that's constantly humbling to me is people's ego. Um, There's a couple people that I met this week. One of them is the founder of one of the biggest technology companies of our time. Any of you would recognize him, and And then I met another guy who kind of does something like what I do on the Internet, where he does life coaching and mindset advice. And I don't think his company is much bigger than Ashley International. I'm not really sure. But when I met him, I just couldn't believe it. It was like he had this aura around him that he was better than the people he was talking to. And you could immediately feel it. Everybody that I had walked up to him with, they had commented on it when we walked away. And then meanwhile, I walk up to this tech founder who anyone would recognize, and he treated me like I didn't recognize him. He assumed that I didn't know anything about him. And he was one of the most modest guys I've ever spoken to. We ended up exchanging information just to get coffee. And what I learned from that was that if you're a business owner especially, If you don't humble yourself to the market, the market is going to humble you. And the same thing applies if you're a job seeker or really anyone is is that if you don't stay humble, something's going to humble you. And it's funny, I was talking to my friend Joe the other day, and he was telling me that sometimes when he feels like he's doing a little too well in his business and his ego starts to get uh, a little too much, He'll go out to bars and ask beautiful women out for the sake of knowing he's going to get rejected by most of them just to keep himself humble. And my point of all of this is that life has a way of softening you when you're feeling like it's a bit much. And there's really two ways you can approach it when you feel like life is overwhelming. Either you can look at it and feel like a complete victim and go into a complete meltdown panic of why is this happening to me. And don't get me wrong, even though I don't totally lean this direction, I definitely feel the weight of when things are happening. And, you know, I'm I'm definitely no stranger to hiding under the bed covers for an extra hour too long in the morning because I'm scared of the tidal wave of my computer when I wake up in the morning. But the other path is one where you realize that even though life feels a bit heavy or like it sucks a bit, you kind of look at how great your life is. And I've been doing this consistently. And for some reason, when I'm broke or when I'm wealthy, uh, just, you know, and that's the way that business works. Sometimes you're doing great. Sometimes you're not. That's when I feel the most humbled. It's in the extremes that I feel the most humbled. And right now, with lead costs going up and me having to hustle at Ashley International, it's just been such an eye-opener to realize that I need to stay humble, and it's really softening me. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, just what I've been learning, and also just what do you do when you feel like your to-do list is running you? How do you handle it when you feel like your to-do list is too much? So... The first step is to make sure you're setting really good boundaries. I am really clear on what's a yes for me and what's a no for me. And people always comment who know me well that they think it's really funny when me and my boundaries come out. 
And it's the highest act of self-love is to set boundaries. And that could mean saying no to somebody you don't want to go to dinner with. That can mean, you know, forgiving yourself for the judgment that you're not nice for wanting to hang out with everybody, whatever boundary it is. So I just want to ask you now, is there a boundary you need to set in your life that you're not setting right now? Uh, A second thing that's really been coming up is as my team is transitioning and I have different employees who are pregnant, um, taking some time off, my workload is definitely increasing. And as I'm kind of looking at that, I've been thinking a lot about um, workload and how do you manage when your workload is too much. And I had an employee who I was giving way too much to her and she never told me. She never mentioned it. She never gave me a heads up. And then next thing I knew, she had a bit of a meltdown. And what I learned from that is that you have to communicate. And I assume that if you're anything like me, there's an area of your life right now that you're really due to have some communication. It could be a relationship. It could be your job. It could be your business. Whatever it is, um, I highly recommend checking in with yourself. Where do you feel like you're not communicating something that you need? Where do you feel like... Um, you know, you're, you're spread a bit thin or you're not really honoring your health or yourself. And can you speak up? And why aren't you speaking up? What are the beliefs that you have keeping you stuck where you are? Because here's the deal. Every single belief we have is just that. It's a belief. It's made up. And so if we're going to make up all of these thoughts, we might as well win in our mirage and make up thoughts that are serving us uh, versus beliefs that keep us smaller, keep us from speaking up when we need something. And that could be in the form of boundaries or just letting somebody know that you have too much on your plate, uh, whatever it is, maybe you don't feel well. So uh, with that said, I just wanted to send you so much love and, you know, just share with you, uh, I, you know, life I think is very slippery when you want everything to be 100% all the time. That's when you're never going to be able to get happy. And so what I've been working on is really learning how to be happy when nothing is 100%. And I'm just realizing, and I know it sounds so annoying because it just sounds so cheesy, but it's just so true. It's like we get to be here. You get to be here. You are a miracle by being on this planet. That You are a miracle of stardust. Your body is made of stardust and different cells. It is a miracle that you have existed and made it here and that you have the gift of life. And so every time my company's lead costs go up, people quit, people transition, people have to leave, whatever it is, and something falls on me, and I'm not really sure how I'm going to solve it. Instead, the moment I feel even the slightest moment of me moving into a victim-like state, I change my language from I have to do this to I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to be healthy. I get to be here. Um, and this was extra present for me because um, I blew my eardrum on a flight from Paris to L.A. a couple weeks ago. And I couldn't hear for like a solid 10 days and um, had to go to the ear doctor to get a shot. And let me tell you, losing my senses, losing my hearing just made me think, wow, people who are missing one of their five senses or any of them, they are living at a completely different level of life because they're being muted in some fundamental way. And for me, it was my hearing and I felt totally off balance. And I just felt like nothing was as pleasurable in my life because I just couldn't hear anything. And um, if there's anything I got out of that, when my hearing came back, every time I hear music in my car now, and I love rap music, I just think, God, I'm so lucky I can hear. Thank God I can hear. Every time my business isn't doing well, thank God I get to be in business. And thank God I get to serve people. And thank God I've got a platform I created. And thank God I've met some interesting people that can help me along the way. 
So where do you need a reframe right now in your life? That's where I want to leave you on this audio. Where do you feel like you need to talk to yourself differently about how lucky you are to be here on this planet right now with the gift of life? And um, that's all i got to say to you today. So it's Ashley Stahl signing off, sending you a ton of love, and just so appreciative that you're a part of my life here on these audios. Let me know what you think. Uh, let me know how you're doing on Instagram at Ashley Stahl. All right, sending you so much love. Take care. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. You can find all of the resources that our guests mentioned on our show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N Podcast.com. Also, don't forget, on the website, we've got our four free e-courses, whether you want to land a new job you love, get clarity on the best career path for you, launch your dream business, or deepen your romantic relationships. I'll talk to you soon. Can't wait to connect on next week's episode.